In chapter 38 of the book of Job, after 35 chapters of arguments among Job and his friends, the Lord intervenes and speaks directly to Job out of the whirlwind. He asks Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Do stars sing? Aristotle thought that the stars were intelligent beings, though I don't remember him ever saying anything about them singing. Kepler thought the harmony of the spheres was embodied in the harmonious relationships among the ratios of the elliptical orbits of the planets, or so I've read. But if stars are inanimate things, must we then conclude that the Lord's reference to the singing morning stars is only poetry? St. Augustine did not quite think so. Commenting on Psalm 148, verse 1, praise the Lord from the heavens, saying he grants that there are, in fact, animate but also inanimate things in the heavens. Quote, yet because these inanimate things in the heavens are also good and duly arranged in their proper order and form part of the beauty of the universe which God created, Though they themselves, with voice and heart, praise not God, yet God is praised in them. And as God is praised in them, they themselves too, in a manner, praise God. If the morning stars sang at the foundation of all things, will, so to speak, the evening stars sing at their consummation? That is, properly speaking, a theological question, not a scientific question, not a philosophical question. But can the theologian who's interested in the fate of the material universe in the final eschaton learn something from physics or astronomy or cosmology so that the question can be asked and if not answered, at least discussed with greater precision and accuracy? That, I take it, is one of the basic concerns of this conference. I'm here as an academic theologian with an interest in eschatology. I have taught an eschatology course every year for the last 12 years for seminarians at Catholic University of America. I am certain that I know less about scientific questions than almost any other speaker. I should add also, um, I'm not a medievalist, and as you will find out as I go along, I'm not a Thomist. Um, what am I doing here? <laughs> because I teach eschatology on a regular basis. I find the astronomical discoveries and cosmological discussions of the last 50 years fascinating. But I know them through the popular writings of such authors as Stephen Weinberg or Brian Greene or Stephen Barr. What I'm going to do in this essay is ask, in a very general way, how the theologian might relate to scientific work the sort of work we've been discussing as the theologian goes about the task of eschatology. Thus, in fact, the presentation I'm going to give will be rather different from what I signed up for at the beginning. This is one of those cases you're asked to a conference and you think, oh yeah, this sounds really interesting, but I don't know quite what I say. So you do a really general title, and then when you get to work, you end up finding yourself really wanting to write something else, which I think turns out it works well for the conference. But you can see I've given you on the outline two different titles. Uh, it's the second title that's really my title here, Will the Stars Sing on the Last Day? 
I will say, I'm not going to give you a contemporary overall view of eschatology, partially because eschatology is incredibly fragmented today, both in topics, both I think the significant difference between what I know best, the German language literature and the English language literature. Let me say a bit about 20th century eschatology and how it didn't engage science and then turn to the scientific questions. In the 20th century, I think you had three waves of interest in eschatology. First, in the early 20th century, Protestant, especially German Protestant theology, under the influence of the groundbreaking work of Wilhelm Weiss, Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God, and in a changed cultural situation following World War I, eschatology became central. In particular, an apocalyptic, discontinuous eschatology that contrasted with any emphasis on cultural progress toward the moral kingdom of God. It was the rejection of neo-Kantianism, rejection of something like the social gospels in the US. Thus, Karl Barth could argue in the early 1920s, if Christianity be not altogether thoroughgoing eschatology, there remains in it no relationship whatever to Christ. So theology simply is eschatology. However, in the interwar theology within German Protestantism, eschatology was seen generally through a rather individualistic existential lens of which Rudolf Bultmann then became the epitome. A second way was in theological ferment among Catholic theologians following the Second Vatican Council, again, especially in the German language world, including in this case, Austria and Switzerland. There were new interpretations floated of the nature of death, of the basis of individual immortality, and of the resurrection. Then a third wave, rather different in the last quarter of the 20th century, liberation theologians, Protestant and Catholic, used eschatological categories to interpret and advocate for an understanding, a particular understanding of history and God's role in it. Now, while all three of these, the sort of apocalyptic uh, Protestant theology following World War I, Catholic speculative theology of death, immortality following Vatican II, liberation theology, well, all of these were, in my estimation, very much mixed bags. They did indicate a strong interest in eschatological topics. These new approaches, however, all framed the eschatological issues in terms that made the new scientific developments of the time mostly irrelevant to their discussions. The questions were existential or the questions were existential or metaphysical or about the nature and theological significance of intraworldly political action. For these questions, Martin Heidegger or Karl Marx were far more important than Albert Einstein or Edward Hubble. I would add also that these 20th century approaches I've just mentioned do seem to share an interest in framing Christian eschatological beliefs in a way that, as far as possible, did not conflict with what they took to be the modern scientific picture of reality as a thoroughly material closed causal system. Rudolf Bultmann was clear that a motive for his program of demythologizing his term eschatology, turning it into a set of existential confrontations with the word of God or death, he said the, the, behind it was a kind, of, a kind of respect for science. 
He famously said, we cannot use electric lights and radios, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time, believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament, a world that he thought New Testament eschatology presupposed. Theology for this approach was concerned with matters one would traditionally have called spiritual and need not touch on matters discussed by the physical sciences at all. This, this self-restriction eliminated the possibility of any war between science and religion, but also significantly blocked their fruitful interaction. Science had nothing particularly interesting to say with the metaphysical or political or metaphysical questions that got involved in those kinds of eschatological discussions. That's just a little background. Let me turn now to my main concern. After this preliminary, let me turn to my main concern. How does Christian eschatology as a theological enterprise engage contemporary scientific cosmology? Two developments in cosmology over the last hundred years seems to me have changed the way my broad question can be asked. First, we now see the universe as far larger, far more comprehensive, far older than was assumed by our patristic or medieval or even early modern forebears. The universe is not just a few days older than humanity, which it would be if you barely have a seven-day creation, and is not limited to the seven celestial spheres of the sun, moon, the five earlier known planets, and the sphere of the fixed stars, as was discussed earlier. The universe is billions of years old and includes billions of stars reaching across billions of light years. This fact does, I think, present a challenge to the fate of the stars, to the way the fate of the stars was handled in much traditional eschatology. The traditional scheme was fundamentally anthropocentric and understanding of the function the material world plays in the divine economy. Father Dominic Holtz talked about just this, the way in which the rotating of the celestial spheres, the telos, was precisely anthropocentric. It related to humanity. Aquinas, in his early sentences commentary, says this, quote, he's talking about the role of the material world, which again, for Aquinas, this doesn't mean the celestial spheres, Professor Holtz, Dr. Holtz made clear. But, but I'm going to use it as referring to the universe because it's materiality, so to speak. Aquinas says this in the scripture. We believe all corporeal things to have been made for man's sake. Wherefore, all things are stated to be subject to humanity. Psalm, five, Psalm 8, 5 following. Now they, all material things, serve man in two ways. First, as sustenance to his bodily life. Secondly, as helping him to know God inasmuch as man sees the invisible things of God by the things that are made, Romans 1.20, end of quote. Now, neither separated souls nor resurrected bodies are going to need bodily sustenance. And the redeemed souls, once they're purged, will have the direct beatific vision of God. Well, then why do you need any material reality in the kingdom? Aquinas does see some role, however. Quote, the carnal eye, even with the carnal eye when it's been resurrected and transformed. The carnal eye, however, will be unable to attain to the division, the vision of the divine essence. Wherefore, that it may be fittingly comforted in the vision of God, 
it will see the Godhead and its corporeal effects, wherein manifest proofs of the divine majesty will appear. There'll be a material reality in the kingdom as a witness to our physical senses of the glory of God, which will be much clearer then than it is now. Now here, our present much expanded picture of the universe is not in any straightforward way logically incompatible with what Aquinas says. But I ask, is it plausible that the billions and billions of stars that exist, many of which will not and some perhaps cannot be known by humanity in history, do they all exist only for the sake of being a witness to humanity in its sensory knowledge? At the very, my mind here boggles a bit. Perhaps the anthropocentric argument can be extended to argue that as, that as embodied beings, as we are now and will be in the resurrection, we require a material world for our context. Even then, the size of the universe does seem to me a tad excessive, if the whole point is simply anthropocentric. Now, perhaps even that excessiveness has a role, an anthropocentric role, perhaps it'll lead to our humility. Well, maybe. My discomfort here still remains. I would rather, rather than take the traditional anthropocentric view, which here I cited Aquinas, but Aquinas is not here particularly unique, does it make more sense to say that in light of what we now know about the universe, much of its contents exists to give glory to God more directly, with only an oblique reference, I'll come to it in a moment, to humanity. A suggestion of a better approach might lie in the scholastic discussion of angels. It is often forgotten that traditional theology did, in fact, assume the existence of extraterrestrial beings, namely angels. In most scholastic discussions I know, Angels are not said to exist for the sake of humanity, even if they have functions in relation to humanity. They glorify God directly. Nevertheless, angels do have a relation to humanity through the incarnate man, Jesus Christ. Christ is not their savior. The faithful angels do not need a savior, and the fallen angels are beyond redemption. But Christ is the angel's Lord, as he is Lord of all creatures. And if speaking here quite crudely, one gives a broadly scotist, as I would, rather than broadly Thomist, answer to the question of the motive of the incarnation. If one says, as I would, that the first and foremost, the incarnation is about God giving the highest possible gift to creation, namely, union with God himself rather than the incarnation being first and foremost about the human humanity, then I think it becomes easier to believe that all things, even galaxies over the cosmological horizon, having, have an eschatological destiny realized through Jesus Christ. All things are related to Christ. For as Paul says, all things are created through him and for him. In him all things hold together. The inclusion of the material universe in the eschaton would then be mediated through Jesus as the incarnation of a logos of all created things. Christ's incarnate humanity is the eschatological link between all created things and God. 
But let me note a certain limit of using the angels here as an example of something related to Christ in a certain sense, but not related anthropocentric through the, simply through humanity. The analogy of the angels is a problem. Angels are rational beings. And so imagining what it means for them to praise God is not so difficult. What might it mean for a star to praise God? Except without the mediation through a rational being of the sort Aquinas postulates. I'll come back to that question later at some length. That's one development in modern cosmology, I think. The simple size, the number of stars in the universe that I think gives a new challenge to Christian eschatology. There is also a second development that alters the questions theology must ask about the destiny of the universe. Namely, the shift away from the steady state universe of Aristotle and the Western secular wisdom until the modern period toward a scientific picture of a universe with a history. In the past, the secular alternative to the Christian picture of creation and consummation had been some sort of eternal universe, just as Father Holtz talked about earlier. And so theological questions engage that picture. Do we know, for example, on, on the basis of human reason that there's a creation? Aquinas discusses this in detail. That's the secular alternative, the steady state universe, so to speak, of Aristotelian wisdom and that tradition all. The contemporary cosmological picture seems to present challenges, I think, less in its depiction of the origin of the universe, 13.7 or 13.8 billion years ago. After all, you're still going to have to give some account of the conditions that gave rise to the Big Bang. I think the challenges is rather in the present depiction of the future of the universe as an endless accelerating expansion and movement toward eventual heat death. I run across widely variant responses to this picture among scientists. Katie Mack, in her recent book, The End of Everything Astrophysically Speaking, concludes this, at some point in a cosmic sense, it will not have mattered that we ever lived. The universe will, more likely than not, fade into a cold, dark, empty cosmos, and all that we've done will be utterly forgotten. Now, writing in 1988, Freeman Dyson was a bit more upbeat, quote, there are good scientific reasons for taking seriously the possibility that life and intelligence can succeed in molding this universe of ours to their own purposes. But in 2004, after the discovery of the acceleration of the university's expansion, Freeman Dyson was a good deal less positive, quote, if it turns out we live in a constantly accelerating universe, we may complain that God designed it badly as a home for intelligent creatures. But we can be thankful that he gave us at least a few trillion years to enjoy it before the final darkness falls. How does the theologian respond to this picture of expansion toward heat death? One option is simply to accept it. Heat death is, in fact, the fate of the universe, and we just have to rethink Christian eschatology along those lines. This option is taken up by the American Anglican theologian, Catherine Tanner, teacher at Yale. In themselves, she argues, human persons and the total universe are mortal, period, full stop, nothing more to be said. She is explicit that we should modify, quote, 
the usual New Testament understanding of eternal life to bring it, to bring it into conformity with an Old Testament recognition of death as the end, not just for individual persons, but for humanity and the cosmos. Each human individual, as a result of God uniting himself with humanity in the incarnation, will, will exist within the life of God, but will not exist as a distinct being, and neither will the universe. Now, Tanner's motivations for adopting this view seem to originate more in her particular vision of the nature of the Christian faith more than any particular commitment to science. Why should anyone else take up such an option? Just accept, oh yeah, that's it, it's gonna be heat death, folks. I mean, it's, yeah, let's just hope, you know, we can hang on, eat, drink, and be merry for a trillion years, because we're all then gonna burn up, or there'll be the big rich, um, as we heard yesterday. Why, why affirm this? I think my sense is, is that the root of the temptation is the aforementioned tendency in much modern theology, at least in the 20th century, to avoid at all costs, any conflict with science, and simply to cede the point that the material universe is not subject to divine intervention, even at the universe's consummation. Gerhard Lofink, German theologian, states, for example, quote, God acts always and without exception through secondary causes. He applies this rule even to the resurrection of Jesus, which strikes me as striking. But in the process, he necessarily must rethink what is meant by the resurrection of Jesus and of all other persons. Resurrection becomes the lifting of the history of creation into an essentially eternal state. Such resurrection, he says, is not an apocalyptic spectacle that will occur at the end of history. It occurs in, puts quotations around in, it occurs in death in which each person encounters Christ. For Lofink, the material world in itself seems to have little or no eschatological significance. He presents a radicalized version of the anthropocentric picture of the material world we find in most medievals or in Aquinas. The material world, he says, will continue in the eschaton only as it has been taken into human life. Quote, the pre-human world participates in the resurrection of the human because humans have internalized it. As we sort of internalize into our life the material world that rises with us, but other than that, that's it. All those stars now that are beyond human experience simply have no eschatological significance. Thus, for Tanner and for Lofink, as far as I can tell, the heat-death scenario in relation to the physical world is just the end. Of, that's the way it's going to happen. Um, you just accept it. This option, particularly of both Tanner and Lofink, to make redemption sort of being lifted out of this world, and this world then runs on its own steam until it runs out of steam. I find this picture deeply problematic. As I've noted, I think the existence of the vast universe then becomes really utterly excessive. Why would God have done this? Um, I mean, God likes stuff that does appear to be the case. Um, he even creates cockroaches, um, for which you know, I hope I get a clear answer on the last day. Um, but, but this really then seems excessive. In addition, the biblical picture of the eschaton is bodily. Read the last two chapters of Isaiah, last two chapters of Revelation. What resources do we have to think theologically about the universe and the eschaton if we're not going to simply affirm, say, that the universe exists 
as the ladder to our eternal blessedness, which we then kick away, and it has no eschatological place. A potential resource, I think, is the long history of reflection, beginning in the New Testament, on the nature of the resurrected body. In discussing the resurrection body, theology had to take up the eschatological significance of temporality, and often did so in detail and in the scholastics with great precision. These discussions, I think, can help us in thinking about the final destiny of the universe. Now, in risk of oversimplification, let me stress three, I think, relevant aspects of resurrected bodies. Uh, I hear, I hope I'm not stepping on Professor O'Callaghan's toes as we talk about the resurrection in the next presentation. First, resurrected bodies were not, are not pictured in the New Testament or the tradition as the products of intraworldly natural forces. The resurrection of our bodies will be an aspect of a much greater transformation of all things, including time, when Christ returns. Second, resurrected bodies will be radically transformed bodies. Some of the usual characteristics of bodies will cease to apply. All resurrected bodies of the redeemed and the lost will be incorruptible. They will not be subjected, subjected to destruct physical change. As Dr. Hulse noted, partially this will be because the celestial spheres will have stopped moving. So there'll be radical transformation. Third, however, despite just transformation, the body that rises is the same body we now have. That is Catholic dogma. The language we will have the same body we now have is in the creed of the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. This identity is not only an identity in kind or species. The body that rises is numerically identical with the body that now lives or dies. There will be a numerical identity of this body now, of Michael Root, and the body of Michael Root that rises on the last day. While that principle is, as far as I know, a principle of numerical identity, unchallenged in Western theology, at least from Augustine on, just what such numerical identity of the earthly and risen body requires, what it is, was a matter of debate. What sort of continuity of matter, for example, might be necessary for this body now to be the same body that rises? Will, will a continuity of form alone, with the matter entirely changed, be sufficient to constitute numerical identity. These debates are, in fact, not surprising. Contemporary philosophy continues to lack, as far as I can tell, any consensus on what constitutes my identity right now with my identity 40 years ago. Um, and you'll have some who even will deny that there's any metaphysical basis for, for continuity of identity except for social convention. Um, Derek Parfit would say there's no actual metaphysical reason to say I'm the same person I was 40 years ago. But no bank is going to give me a 20-year mortgage without some assumption that there's an ongoing Michael Root here who's going to pay it off. So we need this as a social convention, but Parfit would deny that, in fact, there is any ongoing me here in any real sense. Can we extend, then, these um, principles about the Christian resurrected body to the universe? Let me try. First principle, that the resurrection and the eschaton as a whole is a radical break in intervention is, I think, applicable, and I believe rules out at least one approach that I found in some, particularly American, discussions of cosmology and eschatology. That is, that is the adoption of some kind of process metaphysics of Charles Hartshorn or Alfred North Whitehead. Or something like Pierre Théodore de Chardin, 
where you get the idea of an idealist absorption of matter into spirituality moving toward an omega point. Thus, Teilhard can say that after a long historical growth in the spirituality of the spiritualization of humanity, that it means that when Christ, quote, when Christ appears in the clouds, he will simply be manifesting a metamorphosis that has been slowly accomplished under his influence in the heart of the mass of mankind. The conclusion that the expansion of the universe is accelerating toward a heat death does, I think, pose a real problem for this kind of approach. I mean, how is the sort of ongoing lure of God that normally would Hartshorn and Whitehead talk about going to overcome the expansion of the universe? It's quite interesting that Freeman Dyson in 1988 said he was quite sympathetic with Charles Hartshorn, but he then later found no way to make that compatible with the picture of the rapidly accelerating expansion of the universe. If we're going to have a different future for the universe, then it means there has to be something different than natural processes. Second, the radical transformation of physicality. I think this also has implications for our picture of the fate of the universe. Will the incorruptibility of the resurrected body be an isolated phenomenon, or will, cor or will, or will corruptibility be eliminated in all reality? Paul does say in Romans 8, that, quote, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will, and will attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, which seems to indicate that all reality will be set free from corruption. But as the American physicist Stephen Barr notes, that would seem to imply that entropy would cease, that the second law of the thermodynamics would eschatologically cease to apply something deeply incompatible with present physical reality. Here, quoting Stephen Barr, the second law of thermodynamics is a rather general consequence of the laws of probability and depends very little on the details of the laws of physics. The idea that a physical realm continuous with and strongly resembling this universe could be immune to corruptibility, death, and decay is problematic. Barr concludes then that a biblical eschatology requires a radical transformation of physicality itself. As Paul said, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But we also need to apply that third principle, a principle of identity. The resurrected body will be the same body I now have. Now at this point, the analogy between the resurrection of our bodies and the fate of the material universe becomes difficult in some serious ways. The idea of the numerical identity of the human person is tied up with thinking of the human person as an integral substance and not as a mere aggregate, like a pile of sand. Is a star, or even more a galaxy, a substance in that same sense? We may speak of a star being born or dying, but we mean the same thing that we mean when we talk of a person, even a cat, being born and dying. How we think about the identity of something over time is bound up with our metaphysical understanding of what that something is. Unfortunately, the contemporary philosophical discussion of the metaphysics of material objects is exceedingly complicated, and as far as I can tell, manifests no consensus. Read in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy Online the article on material composition, which is just a question, a material composite. I mean, what is it? and you'll get 13 different answers. 
Um, there is no consensus there on whether this, this podium is a, is a thing, and if it is a thing, what makes it? Perhaps the concern for the numerical identity of the, of the risen body is going to have to go. The material universe may be in the eschaton, but won't get resurrected in the same sense. Let me thus pass to a more general application of this third principle. A conceptual reason for the insistence on the resurrection is the Christian hope, and not merely the survival of the soul, is that God wishes to bring to perfection and elevate the human being with its in its integrity. Our bodies are aspects of who and what we are. Our redemption must include the perfection and elevation of who we are as integral, intellectual, spiritual, and physical beings. We can ask, what would it mean for the material universe to be perfectly fulfilled in its being, which means fulfilled and perfected in what it is as a material universe? The general theological principle that grace perfects nature rather than destroys nature here applies. Though the matters are complicated by the 20th century debate over the relation between nature and grace, the debate, I think, of significant importance for eschatology, and which has somewhat become alive again in American Catholic theology over the last 20 years. I myself am quite dubious about the kind of Dubuckian consensus that seemed to rule in much late 20th century Catholic theology. Can we say anything about the nature of a star? What makes a star a star? Our far more difficult question, what constitutes the flourishing, the natural end of a star? What is the good that the star embodies? All that God creates is inherently good, simply as being and as being what it specifically is. Its goodness is a gift from God and more a kind of participation in the good itself, which is God. That the material universe in itself embodies inherent goods is an essential part of the reason why the material universe ought to find a place in the eschaton. Now, whatever constitutes the flourishing of a star, the good which the star embodies, must be preserved and elevated eschatologically if it is included in the new heaven and the new earth. But as I asked again, and I still have an answer, what is the flourishing, the natural end of a star? The primarily anthropocentric understanding of the eschatological role of the material universe found an under, founded on an understanding of the natural end of the material universe in terms of its role in relation to humanity has been that. But as I said, I find that anthropocentric understanding less plausible in light of the massively altered view of the universe. We need to ask anew about how we understand philosophically and theologically the significance of the material universe. What constitutes the flourishing, the natural end, the material things is a question of metaphysics, not physics. But can science at least inform the discussion of the question? I would think a knowledge of basic, a basic knowledge of contemporary physics and astrophysics might contribute to this discussion. Unfortunately, I would not myself claim to possess that knowledge. Again, I find an interest here, but what needs, what needs a deeper knowledge than somebody like I possess. Here I can only apply, uh, appeal to those of you who know more than I do uh, to perhaps participate in that project. I would note, as in, in the end, two lines upon which, given time and leisure, I would explore this metaphysical question about what is the flourishing of the material universe. One line 
would be along a path suggested by the American philosopher Thomas Nagel in his admittedly controversial book, Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. That's all the long subtitle. Nagel finds the explanation, excuse me, Nagel finds explanations that rely entirely on mechanistic causes of the appearance of life, the evolution of intelligent life, the, the time frames of Earth's history, simply inadequate. They cannot produce plausible explanations, he says, of the emergence of life, consciousness, or cognition. He finds a reductive mechanistic understanding of nature, quote, a heroic triumph of ideological theory over common sense. What is needed, he thinks, are, quote, principles of the growth of order that are in their logical form teleological rather than mechanistic. In other words, Nagel thinks an adequate explanation of the world as we know it, which includes life, consciousness, and thought, requires something like final causes. Is one aspect of the good of the material universe its inherent teleological openness to, its natural potency for, the emergence of life, consciousness, and knowledge. One might argue that matter's potency for life is an inherent aspect of what makes it good, whether or not that potency is realized in particular cases. That aspect of the inherent good of the material universe would be a good taken up in the eschaton. Now, an argument such as Nagel's only takes us so far. While Nagel's argument is not anthropocentric in precisely the traditional scholastic sense, it, and it is, in fact, explicitly non-theistic. Nagel is quite defensive. He's not asserting anything religious. Nevertheless, Nagel's picture is still biocentric. Nagel is a self-avowed realist about value. He thinks value exists objectively. But for Nagel, value is bound up with living things. Quote, the actual history of value in the world seems to coincide with the history of life. Even a bacterium has a good in this sense, in virtue of its proper functioning, whereas a rock does not. And I presume he would say, a star does not. Nagel's view is complex, and I'm only touching on its surface. But it does appear for him that merely physical things, stars, galaxies, uh, would only have a value to the degree that they realize life. Is that all the theologian wishes to say? I, at any rate, want to say more, and so I want to at least explore, I'm, really, I'm, I'm being tentative here, a second line of thought. One aspect of the attraction of the process metaphysics of Hartshorn and Whiting is a blurring of the sharp line between animate and non-animate beings by adopting a kind of panpsychism. Panpsychism is the idea that life or mentality or will is present in all matter, period. Or to use a quotation from one dictionary article, the view that mentality is fundamental and ubiquitous in the natural world. Rather than thinking of the material universe as simply dead, which then leads to problems, Nagel notes, on how to account for the emergence of life, and even more problematically, the emergence of consciousness and cognition, forms of panpsychism see a continuum from the cosmic dust to complex chemicals to simple life to whatever conscious life is to be ascribed to a cockroach to self-reflective human consciousness. 
the elimination of sharp breaks along the way, though this continuum, has made the idea of some form of panpsychism interesting to some prominent participants in the contemporary philosophy of mind. It would be David Chalmers. I mean, this is a place also where eschatology needs to engage science, uh, particularly on the whole question of philosophy of mind. How do we understand the relation of consciousness to material brain function? Um, and this is the, what David Chalmers calls the hard problem in philosophy of mind. And one advantage of a certain kind of panpsychism is you don't have the, this incredibly sharp break um, where you have a very difficulty. How do you ever get consciousness to begin with? And how do you understand the relation of human consciousness, chimpanzee consciousness, dog consciousness, cockroach consciousness, bacterial consciousness? I mean, it becomes very difficult where to draw the line. Well, just don't draw the line anywhere. Earlier in this presentation, I was critical of process metaphysics as implying an unacceptable causal role of natural process in the arrival of the eschaton. And I also find the understanding of Hartshorn and Whitehead unacceptable for Christian theology. But these problems are not found in other, in some ways similar, panpsychist metaphysical schemes, which are not, for Whitehead and Hartshorn, they're sort of panentheists, this law, life process in the world is very difficult to distinguish from God. You don't have to make that move. I would particularly note the work of this, I think, sadly neglected, mid-20th century Anglican Thomas philosopher and theologian, Austin Fair, taught in Oxford, in particular his metaphysical work, Finite and Infinite, in which a panpsychist outlook related to Whitehead is developed, but thought through in close conversation with scholastic philosophy, particularly Aquinas, and in accord with the traditional Christian accounts of God. An advantage for our topic is that such a panpsychist understanding of the universe preserves the idea of the potency in matter for life, consciousness, and thought, but does not reduce the good realized in matter to that potency alone. The material universe does not just possess a potency for life and consciousness, and rather, and perhaps in an extremely attenuated way, all things realize that potency. Everything from cosmic dust to humans to angels realizes a good. There is flourishing, which is its being, which is its participation and being in the good. The good of cosmic dust may be less than the good of a dog or of a human being, but it is still an intrinsic good that can be taken up, perfected in some way, elevating the eschaton. Last paragraph. As I have said, these are lines I would wish to explore, not conclusions I have reached. I am, you can choose your sports metaphor, skating on thin ice or leaning way out over my skis. If our Lord returns in the next five minutes, he may well ask me, who is this that darkens castle? <laughs> I have briefly noted some highly speculative answers to our questions. I am not sure how science can contribute to further explanations of such concepts or any how they may sound to the science. In the interest of the article on panpsychism in the Stanford Encyclopedia, they list objections, and the first objection is labeled the incredulous stare. Uh, what are you saying? <laughs> I present them as possible paths, I hope, for orthodox theological and philosophical reflection on the challenge contemporary, contemporary cosmology presents for eschatology. What I am convinced of is that the evening stars will, in fact, sing at the consummation of all things. Their song may not be as complex as the song of the angels and the saints, 
but it will make its own contribution to the chorus gathered around the throne of God. 